In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we are revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Quiet King, quiet the Prince of Peace. That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. This is The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. The name John Lewis is synonymous with the civil rights movement. In 1965, during a protest in Selma, Alabama, Lewis became a symbol of the assault on civil rights when state troopers attacked peaceful marchers near Edmund Pettus Bridge. The goal of the march was to bring attention to the lack of voting rights in Alabama and across the country for blacks. The images of Lewis being bludgeoned with a baton by an officer circulated through the living rooms across the country, and the events on that day became known forever as Bloody Sunday. That wasn't the first time America was introduced to Lewis. In 1963, he was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington. In 1961, Lewis was one of the original 13 Freedom Riders, young and black-white activists who wanted to test segregation laws in interstate bus terminals. Lewis was elected to Congress in November of 1986 as U.S. Representative of Georgia's 5th Congressional District. He has not lost an election since. It's also been recorded that he's been arrested 40 times during the Civil Rights Movement, five times since he's become a congressman. Awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama in 2010, it's safe to say Lewis, like most civil rights icons, has put his time in. Former AJC photographer, when we were talking to John Lewis, you know, I was a very ideal, fresh-eyed kid out of college. Uh, Obama was running for president that year. 
I'm sitting here talking to John Lewis, and what struck me the most with him and Andrew Young was that how could anyone in America right now say that we're past racism? If I am sitting here talking to someone that went through the things we're just about to talk about. How can anyone think this sort of gash that we cut across the heart of our country can have been healed when I'm still talking to someone that lived through it and is now a representative? I think both of those gentlemen, with the time that they've served in public and given back, I think they are the fruits that that movement uh, you know, labored to get. They, they are the people that were able to on official record start making change and that was a really interesting perspective to see to see where that was born from john lewis was at, at a rally for rfk and we he described robert kennedy coming out on stage and announcing the news that dr king had been killed murdered and hearing that audio of the announcement of King's murder by Robert Kennedy, who would only be killed a few months later himself, it chills your heart. You want to talk about the most important year in modern U.S. history, it was that year because of all the things that John Lewis experienced. I am Representative John Lewis of the 5th Congressional District of Georgia. On April 4th, 1968, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, campaigning with Robert Kennedy when we heard that Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot. And uh, could you, uh, let, let's start out with that day. Uh, what was the first thought that raced in your mind when you heard about the shot? I mean, not even the death of Dr. King, but just the shots. When I heard that Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot, I continued to help organize a rally for Robert Kennedy, and I thought maybe, just maybe, uh, Dr. King would be all right, and it was not a serious wound. And later, Robert Kennedy came forward to speak, and he said, I have some bad news tonight. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. That was a sad and dark moment for me. And like so many in the audience, uh, we started to cry. And I cried because I felt like I lost a friend, a colleague, and a big brother. And then I had what I call an executive session with myself and said, Dr. King may be gone, but we still have Robert Kennedy. At that point, uh, the Kennedy family had been through this once already. And I know that Mr. Kennedy offered his help to the King family. Were you involved in that? That evening, Robert Kennedy suggested when the rally was over that we all come to his room at a local hotel in Indianapolis. 
and he instructed us to go to Atlanta and help Mrs. King and his family in preparation for the funeral. Um, I came home and spent time here in Georgia, in Atlanta, and the night before the funeral, it was my responsibility to escort Robert Kennedy, uh, his wife, Ethel, and other members of the Kennedy family through the educational building of Ebenezer Baptist Church downstairs to the sanctuary to view the body of Dr. King. Can you describe that? Could you talk more about your experience walking into Ebenezer to view the body? As we walk down the stairs into the front part of the church, I could see the casket that was holding the body of Dr. King. And we walked closer and closer to the open casket. And we saw Dr. King. Um, it was a very sad, but at the same time, a time, a moment that I will never, ever forget. Um, I've seen Dr. King so many times before as a very vibrant and exciting human being, speaking in a pulpit, a leading a march, uh, speaking at a big rally in Washington or in New York or someplace in Alabama or Mississippi or someplace in Georgia. Um, to see him there, um, I knew then there was the end of a period, the end of a chapter in American history. I was, uh, I had a chance to read your reflections earlier in the Teaching Tolerance magazine on uh, Dr. King. You mentioned uh, the speech he made on April 4th, 1967 at New York. And almost one day less than a year, one day less than a year later, he made his speech at the Mason Temple. Could you talk about those two speeches and how they sort of affected you? Well, on April 4th, 1967, when he spoke at the Riverside Church in New York City, condemning the war in Vietnam, I was there. And I listened well. On that day, he spoke out of his heart, out of his soul, out of his gut. He condemned the violence that we were involved in in Vietnam. And he suggested in that speech that the bombs that we were dropping uh, in Vietnam, those bombs would be heard in the cities of America. Uh, he broke with many of his colleagues in the Civil Rights Movement. He broke with the President of the United States. And saying, in a, in a sense, that America was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He believed that. Uh, he believed that we were spending 
too much of our limited resources on bombs and missiles and guns. And he was appealing to America, to the American people, to the American government, to go in a different direction. You know, Dr. King uh, said in, in, in that speech that it must be nonviolence, it must be peace. Uh, he said over and over again that we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will perish as fools. And he paraphrased the words of Gandhi by saying, it is nonviolence or non-existence. And when he spoke uh, in Memphis a year later, the night before he was assassinated, he spoke of the distance, the progress that we've made, and he spoke of the fact that we were going to create uh, the beloved community, that he's seen the promised land, and he said in that speech that he may not get there. But as a people, we'll make it there. And 40 years later, I think we're still in the process of moving in that direction, moving toward the beloved community, moving toward the promised land. His dreams are not yet fulfilled. Uh, but as a nation, as a people, we are on our way. It's uh, interesting those two speeches uh, reflect both the courage for standing up for what you believe in, even if your colleagues and your allies don't support you on it. But a year later, the speech is still incredibly courageous, but on a much more personal level, that he had realized the sacrifice that he would have to ultimately make. Could, could you speak to that? Well, Dr. King was a courageous human being. He, he displayed raw courage. Uh, in spite of being arrested and in jail, stoned, stabbed, he was willing and prepared uh, to put his body on the line. He said in some of those early speeches, you know, he would like to live a long time. But... Uh, he said also that sometimes you have to find something that is so dear, so necessary, that you're prepared and willing to die for it. So in a real sense, this man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. You think, uh, <clears throat> given your own personal experiences, I mean, was it that sort of inspiration, that sort of leadership that allowed you to endure what you did and still be able to get up the next day and say, I want, I want to still work towards this goal. I want to be part of this. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. became my inspiration. He inspired me. He inspired me to stand up, to speak up, to speak out. He inspired me to do what I call to get in the way. And... Uh, Ever since I met him uh, 50 years ago, I met him in 1958 at the age of 18. Uh, I've been trying uh, to get in the way, to make things better uh, for all human beings that dwell on this little planet. 
that we call Earth. Um, and after he was assassinated, and after Robert Kennedy was assassinated, uh, two young men that I admired and love, uh, I felt that I had an obligation, a mission, and a mandate to pick up where they left off and to continue the struggle, to continue the fight. And, and speak about that a little bit, like in that next summer, uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, that following summer, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, just like, did, how did that make you feel as a, you know, just personally, just, you know, talk about that a little bit more. After the assassination of Robert Kennedy, and I, I really felt that I lost two of the closest and dearest friends in my life. Um, I spoken to Robert Kennedy about 15 minutes before he was shot and killed. And I would never forget uh, being on the fifth floor of the Ambassador Hotel in the suite in Los Angeles and watching television, seeing what had happened to him. And the next day or so, he passed. Um, I felt like something died in all of us, something um, died in those of us who knew Dr. King and New Robert Kennedy. And, and today, I think as a nation and as a people, we're still recovering from what happened to these two young men. I often think, I often wonder if Robert Kennedy had lived, if Martin Luther King Jr. had lived, what would our nation be like? What would our war be like? I'm led to believe that we will be living in a better world and our people will be better if these two young men had lived. They had so much to offer, not just to the American community, but to the world community. When we come back, Representative John Lewis talks about the efforts to keep Atlanta safe after Dr. King's death. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Welcome back to the Voices of King. We continue with Representative John Lewis. Also, we're going to go back to April 9th, and, um, or actually after the assassination of Dr. King, when you came back home, what do you think was one of the things that really helped keep Atlanta stable and, and not to erupt as much as Detroit and other uh, cities around the country as they did after Dr. King's death? In Atlanta, that had been a strong movement committed to the philosophy and to the discipline of nonviolence. And the great majority of the citizens of Atlanta, young and old, black and white, wanted to find the best possible way uh, to honor and pay tribute to Dr. King. 
uh, his message of peace, his message of love and nonviolence had been instilled in the very psyche of the people of the city of Atlanta. And in most places in the heart of the South, whether it was in Nashville or places, other places in Georgia or in Mississippi, um, people came under the influence of Dr. King. They, they appreciated his message of love, his teaching of nonviolence. And many of the people that were involved in the movement grew to accept nonviolence, not simply as a technique, as a tactic, but as a way of life, as a way of living. And people wanted to honor Dr. King by living by his teaching, by his philosophy. When was the last time you, you saw Dr. King? The last time I saw Martin Luther King Jr. was in March of 1968, about two weeks before he was assassinated. There was a meeting in, in Atlanta at a little restaurant motel called Pasco's where he had brought together people to be involved in his effort to organize the Poor People's Campaign. He had brought together blacks, white, Hispanic, Asian American, and Native American. He was going to take people to Washington and, and put back on the American agenda the concerns and the needs of those that have been left out and left behind especially poor and low-income people. Do you think, no, do you think that the Poor People's Campaign was, which was planned for that summer, do you think that something of that nature would have ever even been conceived without leaders like that? I mean, even uh, with its execution, the way it was carried out that summer, do you think it would have been a lot stronger? Do you think it would have shaken the foundation of this country to have someone like Dr. King in D.C. that summer. If Martin Luther King Jr. had lived and been able to implement and carry out that unbelievable effort, bringing hundreds and thousands of ordinary citizens to Washington, D.C., to camp out, to stay there, to live there that summer, it would have had a profound impact on the American community, on the powers in Washington, on members of Congress, on the President of the United States, to do something about poverty and hunger. Um, one other question, just lecture too. What is, uh, you know, you, you said that. Uh, Dr. King was definitely like a big brother to you. Um, can you. Do you have like any fond memory, like every time you think of Dr. King, you think of this one moment that you've had with him and that kind of just always stands out about, uh, about Dr. King? Well, Martin Luther King Jr. was a wonderful man. He was, he was un, just unbelievable. A lot of times people saw him uh, in a pulpit, uh, speaking at a big rally, such as the March on Washington, but he had a great sense of humor. He could tell stories, he could tell jokes that make you laugh until you cry. And I remember on one occasion we were in Alabama, Mississippi, 
uh, going down the highway, he saw some restaurant and he said, we should stop and get something to eat. If we get arrested, at least we will go to jail on a full stomach. Um, once he asked me, he said, uh, John, do you still preach? And I said, yes, Dr. King, uh, from time to time, uh, especially when I'm taking a shower. And he thought that was the funniest thing. But he was a very serious man also. And during the March on Washington in August of 1963, there was some disagreement about some of the things I had to say in my uh, proposed speech. And Dr. King uh, saw a line in it, and he said, John, can we change that? That doesn't sound like you. And I agreed to change it, to delete it. You, I, I couldn't say no to Martin Luther King, Jr. And, and again in 1961, during the Freedom Rides, after we had been arrested and jailed in Mississippi, I wanted to return to school at Fish University in Nashville. I didn't have enough money to pay my tuition. And uh, I told Dr. King, I only needed $500. And he wrote to some church group and got $500 for me to continue my education. And I would never forget it as long as I live. During the march from Selma to Montgomery in March of 1965, two weeks after Bloody Sunday, after some of us had been beaten in tear gas, trampled by horses, and we decided to continue the march. One day we were walking along Highway 80 between Selma and Montgomery, and an unbelievable thunderstorm came up. It just started raining, the heavens opened up, and Dr. King was wearing a little brown cap, and he took the cap off his head, and he placed it on my head, and he said, John, you've been hurt. You need to protect your head. I thought that was wonderful. I will never forget that. I wish I still had the calf. I don't know what happened to it. And the last, well, my last question, um, one of the questions I was asking uh, a couple of people is, what do you think is the um, importance of commemorating the anniversary of Martin Luther King, and um, how significant is it for us to remember this time on the 40th year um, after his death? Oh, I think it's important for us to pause as a nation and as a people and as part of the world community and to remember the assassination of Dr. King. This man was the most peaceful, nonviolent person of the 20th century. He must be looked upon as one of the founding fathers of the new America. Uh, he liberated not just a people, he liberated a nation. And today, because of what he did, what he said, you can go into almost any parts of the world and people know something about Martin Luther King Jr. Any part of the world, it can be in Asia, it can be in Africa, it can be in Central South America, Europe, the Middle East, but people know the words, oh, we shall overcome because of Martin Luther King Jr. He taught us a different way, a better way. And I think generation yet unborn uh, will continue to be inspired by the teaching and the leadership of this man.
last question I had was, uh, what is it, and this is more about you, um, what does it mean to live through that time and be carrying a legacy and be working towards something right now, having lived the life that you've lived, experiencing things that you've had? Well, I, I must tell you, I feel more than lucky. I feel very blessed that I had an opportunity to come in contact uh, with an unbelievable cadre of human beings. Martin Luther King Jr., yes. But a group of people that were young, very young, that was deeply moved and inspired by Dr. King. You know, th this man taught us just how to just move, just go. Just, we grew up. We, he taught us to grow up. And we grew up while we were sitting down on lunch kind of stools. Uh, we grew up while we were walking, uh, marching, while we were sitting in or standing in or organizing. And I wouldn't have it any other way. He made our lives m meaningful. And when, when I look back, uh, look ahead, I feel like my generation and so many young people that we made a contribution. We helped. Uh, those signs, and, and it may seem simple to people today, that we saw when we were growing up that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting, those signs are gone and they will not return. And today, young people want to see those signs in a museum, in a book, on a video. Dr. King helped us bring those signs down. And sometimes I hear people saying, no, nothing has changed. And I would say because of Martin Luther King Jr., things have changed. And if people feel that nothing has changed, I want to say, come and walk in my shoes. And the last question, honestly, the last question. <laughs> I'll talk about what it has meant to you to serve as a congressman for Georgia and to serve, uh, I don't know, after all these years um, in your, in your um, celebrity, in your, your service here. I, I feel so gratified that I've been able to serve uh, in the Congress all these many years, been elected by the good people of Georgia. I know one thing, if someone had told me 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, that one day I would be serving in the House of Representatives. I would say, you're crazy, you're out of your mind, you don't know what you're talking about. It's, um, I love what I'm doing. And each day when I'm on the floor of the House, or when I'm standing in the well of the House, speaking up or speaking out about something, I often think, what would Dr. King do? What would Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. be saying? because I feel like I have an obligation, a mission, to continue the work of Martin Luther King Jr., to continue the work of Robert Kennedy. In the next episode of The Voices of King, we will hear Reverend Samuel Billy Cowles, the Memphis preacher whose house Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was preparing to visit before he was shot at the Lorraine Motel in 1968. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals Sandra Brown, Senior Managing Editors Mark Wallagore, 
and our editor-in-chief, Kevin Riley. Music by Matthew Head. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Oh,